And as a contractor, through their teaching um, parent university courses, one of the discussions that constantly came up with my parents was their inability to have access to spaces like these. They felt disengaged, they didn't feel included, they didn't feel visible. And that was something that as a parent group, we worked really hard to kind of fix. But we didn't ask what should we want or what should we do. We just decided in that room what was it that we needed and decided to put our efforts to creating that solution. It was a very empowerful, empowering space, which is why you are all here this afternoon. This is the, the legacy of those conversations. Can we give those parents a hand, please? Last year, we had an opportunity to host a candidates forum for the Zone 4 Program Public School Board, um, uh, school board election. And that was our first endeavor. It was our, it was our second, we did the DBRAC. Um, we did some debriefing of the DBRAC, uh, the boundary reviews for Portland Public Schools. But one of our official events was in this phase, last year, around this time, where we held a candidates forum for the then um, candidate seeking position on the school board. One of the things that we learned from that event was we, we polled um, how come we aren't seeing a lot of black and brown faces in space like these? We really ask those, those, those disconcerting questions, which are oftentimes uncomfortable, right? Because there are a myriad of reasons. And one of the things that the parents we constantly heard was, one, if you're gonna invite me somewhere, you need to feed me. I get that. We're talking about black folks, I get that. Gotta feed you. And second was childcare. I have to have a safe place for my babies to play while I engage civically. Those were the top two concerns. Those are the top two issues that Black Voices um, attempted to be able to resolve today. It was brought to my attention by one of the candidates running for another position that they felt excluded in this space today because we did not provide sign language services. And I want to speak directly to that this afternoon. And I know that it goes without saying, we learn as we grow. One, I appreciate that candidate bringing that to my attention. I can't do better if I don't know better. But it was not intentional. When we sought to have a target of who we wanted in these spaces and who we wanted their voice to be amplified and to feel like they were heard and to feel like they were valued, those were the top two things that those folks said that they needed in order to show up today. And those were the two services that when we got to see partnership and sponsorship, those were the two services that we sought to really remedy so that we could make this space as accessible as possible. In that endeavor, we did not intend to make anybody feel excluded, ever. I'm a fifth grade teacher. This is not my profession. That is my profession. So creating inclusionary spaces in the classroom is what Nicole Watson is all about. I missed that opportunity here today. I won't miss it again. So I appreciate the suggestion, but you, one of these things that I feel like I must impress, when we do help to grow each other, we have to allow for growth to happen, right? We gotta be patient with one another. We are in highly political, volatile times, and we are taking that frustration out on each other. And that's not where this frustration needs to be. This has got to be. So I apologize if I missed an opportunity today and if someone left this space feeling that they didn't belong here. This endeavor is about creating access for everyone, but specifically those who live in the margins, as my husband would say, 
Well, sign the sources. Completely mad at you for taking this stuff and we're not signing on God. So I'm gonna sign my sources. But those of us who really live in the margins, those of us who really feel pushed out, smushed, forgotten, and invisible, this space is for us. And so if you have a suggestion, put your hand to the plow and come get to work. Put your hand to the plow and come get to work. Because I need help. With that being said, I want to, listen, I just have to get that out because otherwise it's gonna be on my face and you know I know where my facial expressions well. So, thank you for allowing me to make that right with you today and I will attempt to make that right with that candidate. I don't know how successful that will be but I at least wanted to put it out in the space that it was not my intention. And that as I know better, I'll do better in the future. And I hope you give me that latitude to do that. I'm happy that you're here this afternoon. I gotta give a shout out to my Grammy who's in the audience. Grammys, raise your hand. And to one of our other elders, Elder Betty Cox, who's here. Thank you so much for being here. In black communities, it is super important that we give homage to our elders before we start our spaces, and I've been taught that. I want to also give an acknowledgement to one of our elders, Joyce Harris, who's in the space today. And I know that there are many others that I should and could acknowledge, but for the sake of respecting your time, I'm going to ask that my elders permit me to be able to move forward. So I thank you for being here today. I'm going to introduce my husband, who's much better at this insane thing than I am. I'm a little more emotional, and that's all right, because we need a little bit of emotion. We gotta be able to embrace each other after these types of situations. We got to, and I need some embracing afterwards, so I hope you come embrace me. Okay. I'm gonna introduce my husband, who's going to introduce the moderator, and then when we get these lovely candidates on stage, so we can hear from them, and they can earn our vote. Somebody say amen. Amen. Introducing my husband, Ezel Watson III. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, look, this, this, I do, I do, I do, I do. I do, I do. Uh, that, that's, that takes work. That takes work. Uh, just, just on the side note, uh, I love my wife, and I don't like to see her hurt. I, I, I'm gonna just make sure I say that again. I ain't looking at nobody in particular, but I'm gonna make sure I say it. I love my wife, and I don't like to see her hurt. So there is a way to communicate any type of frustration. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. We say I'm a man first. I, I'm, a, I'm a person who really, I get angry by her fast. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying, not to exclude anyone. So moving on, moving on. Our moderator today, our moderator today is ironic that he is the leader of My Brother's Keeper Initiative for Black Male Achievement Initiative. I consider him my brother and he's my keeper as well. Uh, this young man, he is young, but he won't think he's young. Okay? Um, is an academic scholar. He also pays close attention to his physical health. 
He believes that he still has a few more years left in him on the basketball court. Uh -huh. Good years. Good, good years. Good years. You know, he's active minutes, active minutes. But he's also engaged in the work of mentoring young men to show us how, how to be men effectively. How to not belittle women. How to interrupt and disrupt systems of male patriarchy. I've observed him do this in action. I watched him give a speech where he made sure that he addressed outdated gender norms. And that's tough, I can say, as a black man, where things are sometimes ingratiated in us that we don't ever get an opportunity to challenge or critique. So it's my pleasure to introduce C.J. Robbins as our Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm gonna do it one more time because it seems to get more energy the second time. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. There we go, that's what I'm talking about. I wanna thank Ezel for that introduction. Um, I also wanna thank Black Voices United. Um, this is uh, a critical, critical part of engaging in community. And even further, a critical part of engaging in democracy. Coming and having an opportunity to hear from our candidates that are uh, signing up and taking the opportunity to serve the community. Um, so I wanna thank, first of all, I wanna thank our candidates. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to raise your hand and say, not only do I see that there are some things that can be better, but I think that I can help to get to make those things better. And so I first want, want you all to give it up for our candidates today. Second, I want to give it up to you for coming and participating. Again, this is a good So I'm going to lay down some ground rules uh, really quickly. Uh, it says set the parameters. I'm going to call them ground rules. Um, and then we're going to have the candidates uh, all come up. They'll be seated in the order that they filed in for candidacy. Um, so just for pure fairness. Um, but to set the parameters. Uh, so the first one, I call this, um, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. Um, that's uh, something I'm sure yeah, you all have heard in our community. So I will ask each candidate to stay within the time limit of two minutes per question. If a candidate continues after the time has been signaled, I will ask you to finish your thought within five seconds. If you continue uh, further, your microphone will be quieted to ensure we maintain, yep, there it is, there it is. <laughs> So you guys get the picture. You know, I, don't even, I don't even need to finish that. I just will say uh, in advance, thank you to the candidates for helping us to stay on schedule and for honoring uh, the folks here's time today, um, as well as the other candidates' time. Um, I almost forgot because I'm young, but not as young as Ezel says I am. Um, <laughs> uh, I almost forgot that you know when it comes to cell phones today, we understand you got to manage some things. Please silence them. And I know you're gonna need to use it because you're gonna be using it to tweet with our hashtag, Black, Black, Voice, Black Voices United. So hashtag Black 
voices united. I'll mention that a few more times. We want to trim this. Again, uh, I'm not as young as I used to be, but I know how important that is. All right? Um, so the forum is designed to give space to increase voter awareness. This is not a debate. I want to reiterate, this is not a debate. Um, we want our candidates to be taking the opportunity to share about who they are as candidates and not to denigrate the other candidates. This is an opportunity to really share and connect with community today. Um, my goal is to give each candidate five opportunities uh, to help us get to know them better. So that would include their introduction and their closing. Um, so that's why we have to respect uh, time. Um, and lastly, I already said, but during today's forum, uh, time will be provided for each candidate to give both an opening and a closing. Um, I think all of, I've done everything right. I'm looking around to make sure that Nicole is, everything is good, because she's in charge. I'm looking, she, so everything must be good. She's taking care of, she's, and I'm right. Oh, the other thing is, that, so for your, for your candidates, the, uh, on the time, you'll be prompted um, right here with your two minute, your one minute, and then do we have your 30 seconds? Uh, 30 seconds. So that's just kind of how that process will flow. So without further ado, I'm going to ask for uh, each of our candidates to come up, and I will call their names out. Uh, we're just going to have you sit in order from our right to left here, as I call you up. Um, so in the order they filed, uh, Joanne Hardesty, Felicia Williams, Andrea Valderrama, Loretta Smith, and Stuart Evans. Okay. Are we still doing good out there? Y'all ready to roll, right? Yeah. Good. Okay. So the, the, their introduction is going to take the form of a question. It's a broad question. It allows plenty of room for them to answer. Um, Andrea, you're going to be uh, first to answer uh, the question or give the introduction. And question number one is, the city council sets policy and budgets for many functions around our city, such as Portland Police Bureau, Portland Housing Bureau, Bureau of Planning and Sustainability, Portland Bureau of Transportation, and the Office of Equity and Human Rights. Why are you running for the city council, and what special strengths do you believe you will bring to the city? Specifically, what differentiates you from other candidates running for this seat? Andrea? That's a long question for two minutes. Thank you, everyone, for having me here today. My name is Andrea Valderrama. I really appreciate you joining. I am running because I'm a first-generation Caribbean American. I live in Outer East Portland. I'm in my second term on the David Douglas School Board, and I'm excited about being able to bring in this new perspective that's needed. So what are, what are some of the things that make me unique? I think, one, I am currently working in uh, the building. I've been in City Hall for almost six years, and that matters when we're talking exactly about budget setting, about overseeing strategic planning processes, about overseeing administrative work in addition to policy. 
in addition to the community engagement. Those are things that I've thrived in and really enjoyed working on. And particularly in these bureaus, you know, we can't afford to not have someone hit the ground running and understand how to address our affordable housing and our homelessness and our congestion problems uh, without knowing how to implement those good ideas successfully in these bureaus and be able to look at what type of budgets are gonna make the most sense for that type of action. And so these are things that I've already been working on and know how to really be successful in making that happen. I think the other thing uh, that makes me unique is that you know, coming from an area where I go home to every day and still see uh, that we don't have sidewalks, still see that members in my community and in my family are still at risk of being profiled and feel unsafe. That matters to have that type of experience in City Hall as well, in leadership. And to me, it's important to know that I have that sense of urgency with the community to be successful in uh, making uh, change um, in this historic race. So those are some of the reasons why I'm unique and why I'm really excited to be in this race. Thank you, Anthony. <laughs> and feel free to express yourselves through, through applause. That's <laughs> Sometimes you don't know, so you kind of double dutch it a little bit. Um, so uh, the same question uh, to Loretta Smith, please. So are we doing our opening? Uh, this is the opening, and okay. you can respond to the, I mean, so the prompt is, why are you running for city, city council, and what special strengths do you believe you bring to the city? Specifically, what differentiates you from the other candidates uh, running for the same seat? Thank you. Thank you for, for providing this space for us to uh, have a conversation about democracy. I am a single mother. I am someone who has fought for the most vulnerable in our community. And I learned at an early age from my mom, who is a United Auto Workers retiree, and from my aunts, who told me how to be in, and actually modeled how to be independent and how to be strong. And my past includes working for a man who I consider one of the best, strongest fighters for Oregon, Senator Ron Lightning. And then as I, got, I, I went on to become the second African-American on the, on the county commission in 165 years, to be able to fight for the most vulnerable, like our seniors and our young people, I've passed over 70 amendments in the county budget, and I know what it takes to be a fighter. I understand what it takes to look at a budget and identify priorities for the most vulnerable, and I've done that consistently over the last eight years. So I think my experience, my background, and, and my accomplishments would make me best suited to be the next Portland City Council woman. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 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 uh, the same question to you, Stuart Evans. Great, thank you, CJ. I'm Stuart Evans, and I am running for Portland City Council because our city needs a housing and planning specialist to get us beyond our housing crisis. I'm an architect. 
a planner and an innovator. For the last 20 years, I've been working with community groups on housing issues. There are solutions for people experiencing homelessness. There are solutions for affordable housing for our working families. We need somebody with a successful track record delivering housing, and I am that candidate. I moved to Portland in 1976, and it was relatively safe and clean, and almost everyone had a home that was affordable. That's far from the case today. But in a city with our talent and our resources, it doesn't need to be this way. Portland can and should do better. I will bring decades of experience, real world, private sector experience, actually getting projects built and not just talking about them. Through neighborhood plans across the city, I have worked with community groups on finding common ground and making good things happen. And I've worked with the city bureaus for my entire career and I know we can do things better. So I would be coming into City Hall with the experience and the knowledge to get us beyond our homelessness and housing crisis. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And the same question to you, Joanne Hardesty. Good afternoon, thank you so much for being here today. Um, it is my pleasure and honor to be a candidate for Portland City Council. What makes me unique, I am the only veteran running for Portland City Council. I proudly served in the United States Navy. What makes me unique, I am the only candidate that actually has been a staffer and a policy maker as a state legislator for three terms. What makes me unique, I'm the only candidate that ran a nonprofit that was required to raise $450,000 per year and managed that with a staff of seven. What makes me unique, I am the only candidate in this race supporting the Portland Just Energy Transition Measure that will create green job opportunities for people of color, low-income people, people who have not been successful in our economic engine that is the city of Portland. What makes me unique, I do the work whether I'm paid or not. I show up, I testify at City Hall, I challenge the status quo, I come with uh, real policy solutions to our complex problems, and my philosophy is everyone in, no one out. And if we're not talking to every corner of Portland, then we're missing the talent that should be informing our policy-making decisions. What makes me unique is I'm the only candidate that looked Dan Saltzman in the eye and said, I am running against you. It is easy to run when a seat's open, not so easy when you're running against an incumbent. I am the only candidate willing to take on an incumbent because I knew we needed change and we need change now that will be clear and specific and engaging of all of our communities. Thank you. Same question to you, Felicia Williams. So my name is Felicia Williams. I am also running for Portland City Council, and I want to tell you a little bit about my background. So I grew up in South Dakota. I have nine brothers, and I have five sisters, Catholic. Um, I'm number 10 out of 15, and with a family that large, we, we depended on the social safety net. So I know what food stamps look like. 
before I got to Oregon and discovered it's on a trail card, which is pretty interesting. Um, I know what government cheese tastes like. Uh, mixed up milk with the sludge on the bottom, not my favorite thing. The peanut butter, the government peanut butter that doesn't spread on bread. I remember all of that. I remember what it felt like to be on the free lunch program. And then later when I was in high school and there were fewer kids in the house, on the reduced price lunch program. We had a grand total of one option available to us if we were going to go to school. It was to join the military. So I did that. I joined the Air Force, just like five of my brothers did. I spent five years in the Air Force. My job was command and control. Anytime an accident happened, a plane crashed, a tornado hit, my job was to get that under control as quickly as possible. After I got out of the Air Force, I moved to Oregon. I went to school at the University of Portland and then graduate school at Portland State University. I taught history at Portland State and at the University of Portland, and I am a published historian. Teaching is a labor of love. Now I work for a biotech company, but my love is Portland. And for the past decade, I've been serving as a volunteer. I started with the neighborhood associations. That's the trenches. When you find out where the city works, where the city doesn't work, it's in the neighborhoods. And that's why I'm running. I've seen what the city does well and what it does very badly. And there are things that we need to fix. That's why I'm running. I've served as the president of my neighborhood association board for the better part of a decade, as well as the neighborhood coalitions. I know how to reach consensus. I know how to get unanimous votes. There are things we need to fix. My name is Felicia Williams. I want to fix this. And I want you to support me so we can get it done. Thank you, Felicia. So on to our second question. Um, it's been said that a budget is not just a financial document, but a moral one that reflects the values and priorities of our elected officials. Mayor Wheeler has prioritized addressing homelessness and infrastructure maintenance this budget season. As budget season progresses, what bureau budgets are you following most closely, and what do you think are key budget line items for fiscal year 2018-2019? And the first candidate to enter this one is Loretta Smith. Thank you. There's no question that housing is probably the most important issue for folks living in Portland and in the state of Oregon. I know that there are opportunities that we can take if we just push forward and be very deliberate and intentional about what we're going to do. The first issue, we have about 989 brownfields in this community properties that need to be cleaned up. We can use those properties and make them out of affordable mixed-use development so that more folks can get affordable housing right here in this inner area. The second piece is we need to figure out how we're going to house the homeless and houseless in this community. I think we need to consider opening Wapato. It does not make sense that we have 88 people who have died on our streets last year when we have a building that we paid $100 million for and that we spent $500,000 a year to keep, to keep a building open that has no one in it. So I'm very clear on where the issues are and what we need to do, and we need to use our resources to land bank. We need to buy, repair, affordable multiplexes so that we can put folks who need places to stay 
in those uh, multiplexes right now. We need to do it today. Thank you, Loretta. Stuart? Thank you, CJ. Um, uh, Commissioner Smith and I agree on Wapato. However, uh, it's, I think it's a, bigger, it's a bigger picture than that for homelessness. And I think homelessness, uh, you know you mentioned, CJ, that the mayor is prioritizing homelessness. And I don't think the mayor is prioritizing homelessness enough. I just did a homelessness plan that's on my website that looks at the entire problem at all 4,200 people. Uh, who are uh, experiencing homelessness, 1,700 people uh, on the street. We have over, this is what really gets me, over a 1,000 Portland public school students who are homeless. That's outrageous. And we are not spending enough of, enough of our resources trying to fix this. When we do have money, for instance, our bond dollars, we are not getting enough out of our bond dollars for housing and to, to combat homelessness. Right now, the, the bond is uh, going to um, build 1,300 units. We have uh, 25,000 people who are in need of affordable housing. We will see after four years, hardly any change in homelessness, hardly, hardly any change in affordable housing with these bond dollars. I want to work to turbocharge, if you will, our bond dollars and our public monies to get as much housing built as possible. Um, that, is, uh, that is my priority, and my first priority is getting all of our kids housed in safe, warm, and dry. Safe, warm, and dry housing is the foundation for a successful life, a successful city, and that should be our top priority. Thank you, Stuart. Joanne? Uh, thank you. Uh, the question again was? <laughs> the question is, as budget season progresses, what bureau budgets are you following most closely, and what do you think are key budget items for fiscal year 2018-2019? Thank you so much for that question. Uh, your framing was, the budget says where our values are as a city, and I absolutely agree with that. So I've been following very closely this request by Portland Police Bureau for 60 police officers this budget session, 75 next budget, and I think 100 the budget after that. And I think that that, is moving, that would move us in the wrong direction. I am concerned that uh, Portland Police is trying to permanize the, um, the, uh, a program that they work with people that are on the street that are chronically stopped by police um, at, at a cost of $2 million a year. They're trying to slide it into uh, being permanently funded by the marijuana tax. That is not a good use of money that criminalized an entire community to then be using it as a kind of police slush fund to do projects that they want to do. I think it's important that the budget reflect who we say we are we have way too many people living on our streets and what our solution has been to criminalize them or warehouse them. We need affordable housing in every neighborhood in the city of Portland. We have to be very creative about how that happens, including shared housing, including housing with services attached, including uh, just really thinking outside the box. I'm excited about Metro's housing measure because I think that we have to partner with our community, with all the governments, because Portland by itself won't solve the housing crisis. And I'm thrilled to, to have great relationships with Metro councilors, with Multnomah County, all the commissioners on Multnomah County, and the City Council of Portland. So I look forward to working cooperatively with all of them to actually reduce our need for police and increase our housing stock 
in every neighborhood in the city of Portland. Thank you, John. Felicia.
from the get-go. We can add additional resources there to make sure that that's happening. And one other thing that I'd add is it's not just about budget setting. We also need to look at ways, mechanisms to keep ourselves accountable, really look at what is the equity lens that was being used here. Can we improve that? How are we really thinking fiscally long-term, not just building, but maintenance? Those are the things that really matter in the long-term budget setting process to me. Thank you, Anthony. Before we go to question three, I want to thank, I didn't get a chance to thank our folks who were online. We had, we had over 300, I think it was 350 folks who were viewing um, our forum this morning. And I must, yeah, give it up. Um, so I want to thank them, and I also want to remind them that this forum is not closed to them. They can also put questions in uh, for when we get to the end here. There's no guarantee that we'll have time. Folks online, that's why you gotta show up. And, and put your questions in. It will make a difference, all right? Uh, so going to question number three, we're gonna start with Stuart on this one. The Office of Equity and Human Rights, OEHR, has set forth an equity agenda for the city that is partially being implemented at the bureau level through five-year racial equity plans. What do you consider to be the most important elements of a bureau-level racial equity strategy? That's part one. Part two is, as a city commissioner, how do you envision holding city bureaus accountable to their racial equity priorities? Thanks, CJ. Um, well, throughout my career, I've been uh, working uh, for projects with the city of Portland on a, on a number of different levels. Um, first of all, uh, schools. I really believe that uh, the city of Portland can make kids, can help make kids uh, ready to learn when they get to school, and that, co that comes into housing. And I, that absolutely has a lot to do with equity in our city, and I don't think City Hall is doing nearly enough to make kids ready for school. And I've, uh, you know, I've, I've just talked to a teacher yesterday, and you should hear the stories about some of the kids coming into our third grade class because they didn't have breakfast and they're not housed in, in a stable house. The second thing is um, CTE. I, uh, I am a, I used to be a woodworker in my high school that's got me through high school, and I believe that we can do a lot more with CTE and getting kids who are at risk of not graduating, graduated. And I think the city can have a tremendous impact on helping partner businesses with Benson High School and other high schools to get all kids graduated. And CTE is a key part of that. And then the second, the third thing I want to mention is I did a project on MLK um, with uh, Portland Development Commission, and we suggested, uh, we, you know, I, as an architect, I saw there weren't enough minority businesses to choose from on my teams. So I came up with a plan to do job shadowing, uh, to, have, uh, to have students come through our, uh, through our project and learn, and hopefully we could see some businesses come out of that, some minority businesses, and PDC said, no, we don't do that sort of thing. We only just, uh, do what we're, uh, you know, do what we're doing with these percentages. And I said, well, you know, that's just not good enough. If we want to have more minority business in the businesses in this town, we need to support schools and we need to support efforts like that within our projects. Thank you, Stuart. So to Joanne. Uh, thank you. Uh, I had the pleasure to be part of the panel that thought about what the Office of Equity and Human Rights should be 
um, and made sure that we had a budget that would really support the creation of this new office. Personally, I am very disappointed with the Office of Equity and Human Rights and its lack of outcomes. I think what has happened in the city of Portland, which has happened in most government entities, is they've hired 1.5 staff person, made them the equity coordinator, so that the director, so that the elected official is no longer accountable for eliminating the racially inequitable outcomes that are systemic in the city of Portland. Um, over and over and over again, we keep coming up with these schemes that are supposed to benefit women and emerging and minority-owned contracting firms, and the city has failed miserably over and over and over again. And so equity is just the new buzzword that we use to actually not get the outcomes that our community deserves. For me, I look at outcomes, and if the social determinants of health haven't changed for African Americans and 30 years of progressive leadership, then we have a serious problem. And a serious problem is, there's not even intellectual curiosity about why those numbers aren't changing. And so unless we change who sits in those seats, we'll continue to get the platitudes and the big deal programs that are supposed to fix the inequity that has been historic, that continues, even while some people are making a small fortune, African Americans are not faring well in the city of Portland, never have and never will, unless we have a voice on the city council that is unafraid and unapologetic about asking the hard questions and then working to fix those problems. Thank you, Jeremy. Felicia? I have a quick question, just a show of hands. How many of you guys have ever been in a union before? Okay, so this is kind of interesting. I was looking at some stats for the city, and what we found was that union members in the city are much more diverse. But when you get to the management levels of the bureaus, and the open staff, they go back to the straight white male. So this is a decision that's being made at the upper level. This is the city council members who are choosing the bureau directors, and then they're choosing their senior management staff. So that's where the breakdown is really happening. One of the pushbacks has been unionizing the senior management. If we did that, then it would probably start following the same trends as the regular union members, the city staff members. So this way, this is how you can really start enforcing that. So you're getting diversity at the top levels as well. That's an equity issue. And the city council has complete control over that. So this is one of those things that we need to start thinking about and holding people accountable. So, unions? I'm down with unions. I was a union member too. But this is the best way to make sure that these goals are being met. So please, if you're not a union member, see if you can get your, uh, your company to start organizing union members and support them. So thanks, Mayday's coming up. Thank you, Felicia. Andrea? Yeah, I particularly appreciate this question. I'm really looking forward to working more directly with OEHR and I'm hoping to, that this would be one of the bureaus that I would have. Uh, in terms of the question specifically around the racial equity plans, I do think that the bureaus went through a significant effort to pull all of these great outcomes that they would like to see around workforce, around uh, accountability, and unfortunately we don't have enough staff to be able to make that happen. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in 
prioritizing is making sure that each bureau has an equity manager, not just someone who they are um, giving the plan to to work on half time in addition to their other priorities, but that someone is dedicated to making sure that they are implementing the strategies in the plan. In addition to that, we also need to be giving the Office of Equity and Human Rights many more tools to be successful in and of themselves. And so looking at ways to uh, improve the, the Bureau and having someone there also be the person for all of the implementation of the racial equity plans is also really important. Um, I do think that overall the plan um, won't be successful unless we have the data and the outcomes um, to be able to refer back to and say this is where we want to be, this is what we know is not working, and this is how we're going to get there. And so to me it's really about being able to pair that with uh, the data and also understand where we're at right now. We are uh, looking at uh, hiring a new director and in the middle of a strategic planning process. I think that's another great opportunity for the Bureau to really have more roots and uh, be a leader in the effective change that we know we need around equity and in the city. Thank you, Andrea. Loretta? Thank you. When we talk about equity, we need to talk about young people. We can talk about outcomes, but I am the only candidate here who can talk about putting a program together to make sure that youth have employment. I started a program in my first year, and we've grown that program to serve over 5,000 young people in this community. And I know if you had a raise of hands here, all of you had summer jobs. I wanted to find out exactly what young people wanted, exactly, particularly, what young black and brown men wanted. I had a town hall meeting, filled up the boardroom, over 200 young men and boys and men talking about what they wanted from their county government. They said, Commissioner, we want summer jobs. We want money to start businesses. Can you help us? They also said this is the first time in their lifetime that they knew that a commissioner asked to speak to men in our community. I know that there's 30,000 young people in this community from the ages of 16 to 24 who don't have a job and who are not working. I know that I've led a program that is in ongoing funding and it served underserved, low-income kids who have never been served at that level before. We put a $2.1 million investment into our young people. We need someone like Commissioner Smith to be at City Council to hold their feet to the fire to make sure we continue to support these young people. Thank you very much. So I want to make a, a quick note, um, just for full transparency. I work for the Office of Equity and Human Rights. <laughs> So, I didn't say that before the question, but just for full transparency, because people matter, and where we're at as individuals matter. So I wanted you all to know that. Thank you. So question number four, and we'll be starting with Joanne on this one. Portland ranks among the fastest growing cities in America. As density increases, city officials must develop new strategies to manage issues such as roadway congestion and increased need for affordable housing. Population growth, growth has contributed to the acceleration of gentrification, forcing many black families to make tough decisions about where they can afford to live, how they travel to work, and where to send their children to school. Questions are, 
What strategies do you think are most important for mitigating the impacts of gentrification? That's question one. Number two is, what specific policies do you plan to champion in support of the black community in the midst of a rapidly changing city? Uh, what an excellent question. And I would just say the, the black community is spread all over uh, uh, Oregon. Um, and of course, we're moving what used to be traditional black community members out to the real edges of our city. At the same time, we now want to create uh, processes like uh, uh, congestion pricing to charge people for the privilege of coming back into a city that you've been pushed out of uh, during rush hour both ways. Uh, I've been attending meetings at Multnomah County Boardroom that are being led by uh, Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson. I've been talking to TriMet, who has this vision of electric buses. And my question is, why are you building a transformer station in Beaverton when East Portland desperately needs jobs that will be living wage, family wage, job opportunities for our kids who live in East Portland? Um, I continue to ask TriMet, why, why is our public transit system not free? We'd rather criminalize people for not having $2.50 rather than create a world-class transit system that is made for the people who are most transit dependent because if, we, if you start there, it works for everybody else. And so we have elected leaders that love to live in their silos and they just stay in their own silos. They don't actually pick up the phone and call people in other agencies because people don't live in silos. We can't afford to live in silos. We should be having uh, electric car stations at the outskirts of the city for low-income people who are forced to need a vehicle to get to doctor's appointments, et cetera, et cetera. What we have is really backward thinking because we continue to do what we've always done and somehow expect it's gonna fix our transportation problem. Thank you, Jenny. Felicia. When we got hit with the condo conversion, we lost about 500 units of deeply affordable apartments. 500. So we also have thousands of public housing apartments within a couple of blocks of my building. Everybody pinned their hope on getting into the Roche Minster because it has 223 apartments in it, and it's a Section 8 building. One of our board members, um, John, he unexpectedly lost his job a couple of years before retirement. He was working at Portland State. And at the same time that that happened, he was experiencing housing insecurity because his rent was skyrocketing. This is at the same time that the Community Alliance of Tenants started talking about inclusionary zoning ban at the state and seeing what we could do to overturn it. Our board of directors looked at that and uh, we decided that we were gonna go ahead and take a position on it. John went personally to every single person on that board and got them to support the uh, overturning of the IZ ban. So when our um, state rep, Jennifer Williamson, came to talk to us, we asked her, focus on this. At the same time that the state overturned the IZ ban, we were going through the comprehensive plan of the Central City 2035. We understood that the zoning changes would be impacted by IZ. And we figured if they're gonna build tall, they're gonna build tall in downtown. So we were happy with that. What we saw a couple weeks ago from city council when they killed some of the zoning, kept wondering, who does that help? It didn't help John. Doesn't help anybody else who was dislocated. 
We need to start thinking about the ramifications of the actions, follow it through to the logical conclusion. Who does this help? And more importantly, who does it hurt? Mm -hmm. And that's the job of elected officials. And that's why I'm running for city council. Thank you for this. So when I first moved to Portland, I lived in the Coley neighborhood and over time was unable to really find anywhere that I could afford. Uh, there was this big circle that was clearly places where I couldn't afford and now live in Gateway and have been slowly kind of moving out east because of uh, the affordability crisis that even uh, eight years ago was a problem and, and has since exacerbated in terms of the specific strategies to your question of how do we make sure that we're mitigating displacement in addition to preventing it. I'm a firm believer in community benefits agreements really working with uh, community to make sure that if and when infrastructure is developed that we are doing it in a thoughtful way in a community-led way I also think that when we talk about our housing and homelessness crisis it's really one of affordability I don't understand how someone like my mom can work 40 50 hours and still barely make ends meet and the majority of the resources are going to rent or housing costs that's a problem so we really need to look at how we can be better about providing the economic stability and job opportunities so that all families can afford to live in their homes if they want to and thrive there and continue to be part of their community. I am a big fan of multi-generational living. My mom lives with me in addition to my uh, sister and her kids. It's extremely helpful for us as an um, immigrant family to have that experience. I think we should have more opportunities for that to happen. I'm also a big fan of the preference policy that we have uh, in, um, in Northeast uh, Portland where we do provide an opportunity for people to come back into an area if they were displaced. I'm really interested in figuring out how we can be better about expanding that opportunity for more people, um, and particularly for our seniors, folks on, folks on fixed incomes, to make sure that um, we are providing them the subsidy um, to be successful. Thank you, Thank you. Information is key. If you don't have information, you don't know what's going on. And I think the lack of information to minority communities is a problem. If you look at the city budget, it's almost $4 billion. So you have to follow the money. Where is the money going? The city and the county government, they're an economic driver. So I propose that we, we go out into the community and we talk to community-based organizations. Let them know when the RFPs are coming out to do business with the city. Be very deliberate, very intentional. Identify where can we find opportunities to put more and additional affordable housing in East County. I live in East County. In fact, I live in the Wilkes District. Me and my son have a duplex. And I noticed that there are not as many services or transportation out there. We need to begin to, to build neighbors and neighborhoods and businesses past 82nd. There is not one elected leader who lives past 82nd, except me. You need, to, you need to have someone who is going to be a voice for the voiceless. You're going to need to have someone who understands a budget day one. You need to have someone who will be able to speak truth to power and who has spoken truth to power and who has stepped up into the gap about resources. I started the Promise Neighborhood because 
I noticed that African-American young people, they were not graduating from high school. And so I worked backwards. I put $2.1 million in the Promise neighborhood so that organizations like Latino Network, SEI, ERCO, NEA, people who do great work with kids of color and their families so they can help additional families. There's never been that kind of money directed towards guaranteed money for communities of color before I've done this. So I want to continue to do this at the city of Portland. Yeah. Thank you. Steve? Well, one reason our roads are getting clogged is because everybody's getting pushed out of town and has to get on the freeway for an hour to get to work. Um, we are, the horse is leaving or has left the barn and our city council is dithering about and not doing enough to address the numbers. We have 25,000 people who are in need of affordable housing. And you know, this housing bond is gonna take care of 1,300, including uh, 300 uh, plus uh, maybe 600 homeless. It's just not enough. So I, uh, I did my homeless plan here. That is the start. It, it's not just talk. It is a plan that looks at the numbers holistically for 4,200 people um, who, who would go into 3,300 units of housing and the rest in shelters in two years. Um, and and then after that, then we look at our affordable housing thing. How do we, how do we address 25,000 and not just 1,300? That is, uh, we, we obviously need to look at the private sector. We need, to, we need to combine public and private dollars to make that happen. There's a constitutional amendment that hopefully will go on the November ballot like the state of Washington that will address that. We're not looking at the problem holistically. And until we do, we're going to see more and more people getting priced out of, out of the city. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much, guys. And I apologize for the brief interruption. We just want to make sure that those of us in the audience remember to be your best self today. Uh, in my morning meditation, today <clears throat> told me that my basic nature is that of light. And I believe that that is, the, that that is true of all of us that are here today. And so this is a very tough task that the candidates are engaging in. I am listening eagerly. What I would hope that I don't have to filter out is heckling. So we just want to ask that we respect the candidates and the future leadership of our city. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, Zach. And I know as we get warmed up and start to get comfortable with each other, that's when the heck really starts. So um, let's get comfortable with each other and still keep it in love. Right? That's right. Let's keep it in love. So, um, so I'm going to kind of a bit of housekeeping. Um, we have one more prepared question because of time today. We're not going to have an opportunity to go to audience questions. Um, so we have one more prepared question, and then we'll be moving into the closing. And I'm, I'm looking at the boss. Okay, the boss says yes. So we're good. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, question number five, and for this one, we'll start with you, Felicia. Uh, like many states, Oregon has, been, has seen a rise in hate crimes the last couple of years. 
The deadly MAX train incident in 2017 was a startling reminder that although progressive, Oregon has a long history of racially motivated violence and presence of many white supremacist organizations, many of which are untracked. Much of this, much of this is motivated by anti-black sentiments. Black people, including our immigrant and refugee populations from across the African diaspora, have felt especially vulnerable and are expressing more fear for our personal security and our children's security in public spaces. What role do you think the city of Portland plays in addressing these security concerns? Part one, and you all know by now we're gonna have a part two. How might you activate more city attention on this topic from the commissioner seat? You know, it's interesting because back in the 1980s, I, got a, I did history work, right? Yeah, sorry about that, Mary. Okay, so back in, um, I did a lot of history work, and where I started actually was with an interview with Bernie Foster of the Scanner newspaper, and he was telling me about how the MLK street renaming happened. And so as part of that oral history interview, I went back and I was reading through all of the records from the city archives and from the Multnomah County archives to figure out what was going on. And one of the first things that I noticed is that the police reports didn't match up with the MHRC records. So there was a huge discrepancy in what was being reported. And then the situation got even worse. You had the late Stevens that happened, the don't choke and smoke them, and the cops. The cops were never punished for that one. And then you had Mulligata Sarah. And it was interesting because while that whole MLK street renaming process was happening, the city just kind of sat on it. It wasn't important. And then after Mulligata Sarah died, then the city fast-tracked the renaming. You know, this is what the city does. They sit and they watch until they're forced to act. And that's what we saw this summer too. Sitting, watching until they're forced to act. That's not good leadership. The city has a responsibility, especially the city council members, to be out in the community demonstrating what's appropriate, what's not. And when hate crimes happen, cracking down on it hard. This shouldn't be happening in our community. And all of us have a responsibility to stand up to it. So that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna keep standing up to it. Because this happens in my neighborhood too. It happens throughout the city and we all have a responsibility to make Portland the best place it can be. So let's do that. Let's work together and make sure that this stops. Thank you, Felicia. Andrea? Uh, so as the first person of color to serve on the David Douglas School District, which is uh, Outer East uh, Portland past 82nd, um, you know, it was a pretty difficult and lonely experience for the first year. Uh, one of the first things that I had the pleasure of doing was championing our own sanctuary resolution, which was then uh, used as a model for other school districts in the area. But while that was happening, there would be visible white supremacists who would show up at our board meetings. Uh, my car was broken into and a uh, death threat was sent uh, to my house. I have a two and a half year old daughter. Uh, the fear is real. Um, this is something that I personally experience, my family experiences, and it doesn't matter where I work. Uh, this is something that um, is a concern uh, and it's roaming. I heard uh, testimony from parents who were scared to take 
take their kids to work because they didn't know if they were going to be deported, um, to get the medical services that they needed because they didn't want to go to a hospital. Um, there are students, um, kids, um, my uh, just a little older than my daughter, uh, nervous about um, uh, achieving in the class in the classroom, and I remember what that feeling is like, and it's a problem. And so. Uh, what did I do? I uh, voted for myself on my second term now. I think we have to have people, quite honestly, who understand what this is like, but who are willing to fight that good fight and look, um, you know, folks in the community, uh, people who are intentionally um, creating this fear, show up in our uh, board meetings and say, you know what, um, that's unacceptable and we are going to continue to be welcoming. We are going to continue to step up and say uh, that. Uh, this is no longer the community that we're going to see, regardless of uh, the violence directed towards us in our community. Uh, and so that's something that I think about in this election. What is the story that we're going to tell folks like my daughter um, and her generation, too? Thank you, Anthony. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my granddaughter, who's four years old, and thinking about what kind of future she's going to have. And then I think about who's in the White House. And I went to the Women's March, and I had the folks repeat after me, love trumps hate. Love trumps hate. And the more that I said it, the stronger that I got about what my mission is. It is very clear to me that one of my missions as a city comm commissioner is going to have to be giving pushback to the White House. I had so many emails in 2016, calls from constituents who were immigrants and people of color who said they were afraid to come into our clinics, into our homeless shelters, into our libraries, our sun schools. And so I finally, what I did as a leader, when I saw that there was pain in the community, I tried to ease that pain by drafting and passing a sanctuary county piece of legislation, which lets people know that we are not going to turn you into ICE. We are not going to tell them that you are here. That is not my responsibility. Multnomah County is a safety net organization. Having put that piece of legislation down, that gave me an opportunity to fight back just a little bit to this Trump administration. The struggle is very real, folks. Now, he may take some of our county money because we passed that sanctuary county. I called some of my colleagues and said, do you have our back over here? Because we know they're coming for us. We need your support. We need to be able to help people of color and immigrants when they're in their time of need and make sure they know that we have their back. That's why I want to be a city councilwoman. That's why I want to be a good example to my granddaughter and her friends to let people know that it is okay to step up and stand up for people who are getting a very, very raw deal. Thank you, CJ. Well, as we speak, my 24-year-old son is on the Washington Mall protesting against gun violence at schools. You know, when uh, Donald Trump was elected that night, oh my gosh, I just left the convention center and couldn't, I went and looked at Helen on television and I, I didn't know what to think. I was just uh, despondent. You know, we had a lot of hope with uh, Barack Obama coming into the White House, and we thought we were really climbing that hill, and we were really making progress, and then all of a sudden, bang, 
and it came into Portland as, as well, and I was on the street with Portland Resistance, and, we, and since then we've found more and more divisiveness in our, even in our progressive community, our communities of color, our, our people who were, you know, allies before are kind of at each other. Um, we are Portland. We are, can rise above that, and I think city council ought to set a tone to bring our community together, to bring former allies together, but work, work as a community so we are one. Um, we can do projects together. We can, uh, maybe we ought to not all be screaming at each other at city council meetings. Maybe the city council, uh, councilors ought to be out, councilmen and women ought to be out on the streets marching and also helping to bring communities together. Um, I just, I feel really hopeful that we as a community, Portland especially, can make really great strides in showing the White House that we can do things better. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. This is a great question. So after the November 2016 election, I made a commitment to stop talking to the choir. I started going to Beaverton and Lake Oswego and Hillsborough and to um, uh, Alps clubs, having conversations about race and a role of white people to eliminate racial discrimination. Um, in addition, I contacted statewide leaders and said, the silence is deafening from our elected leadership around standing up against white supremacists and, um, and racialized uh, intimidation that had been taking place. When you are a person of color and you see Portland police escorting white nationalists down the street on 82nd Avenue, when you know that the training director for the Portland Police Bureau is a Nazi and had his, his service record uh, cleaned out, uh, what I'm concerned about is our leaders have been deathly silent. Uh, this letter that I was told at the Labor Day picnic, statewide leaders were signing to say that they were gonna take a strong stand. We're still waiting for that letter. I find it really disappointing that the African-American woman who was attacked on the MAX train the night before those poor people lost their lives was treated like a criminal rather than like a crime victim. Um, and we need leadership that's not gonna pretend that we're not living this reality. The other thing is, let's stop telling people we're a sanctuary city. There's absolutely nothing sanctuary about the city of Portland, Multnomah County. When the sheriff is still cooperating with ICE, uh, when people are still being, families are still being destroyed, and you have a sheriff that actually is in cohesion with ICE, do not tell people that we're setting people up for failure. It absolutely is the wrong message. The message is, is that we're, we have to fix this ourselves. As a community, we have to protect community members. I'd love to see us developing a new underground railroad. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you So we're going to go to closing statements now. We're going to go in the same, uh, in the order that the candidates file. So this will be the order that they're sitting in uh, from my left to right, from your right to left. Um, so they'll have two minutes each, and we're gonna follow the same time protocols we've been following the whole time. Uh, before we get there, though, uh, I just wanna thank the candidates. This has been a great opportunity to get to know your platforms, what your plans are, where you think the issues are, um, and where your heart flows from in the work. And I wanna thank you again 
for raising your hand and saying, I think I can play a major role in fixing the problems that I see in my community. Closing statements to you, Joan. First, I just want to thank you so much for making time in your schedule to learn about this most important city council race. Um, I hope that you will look at what people have done rather than what people say they will do. Because everybody talks equity, but very few of us live equity. I have, I am a people candidate. I am so proud to say right now I have over 800 individual donors because I'm not being funded by the fat cats, I'm being funded by people like you. My campaign is about bringing people together who've had no voice in their government, who've had no opportunity to sit down with their elected leaders and have their concerns met. I think it is disrespectful to expect you to go to the government. If I am your representative, my job is to come to you, not to demand you come downtown to City Hall at 9.30 a.m. on Tuesday morning. That's not convenient for most people, only for people who have a vested interest in what comes out of City Hall. I was a bit appalled yesterday to learn that we're incentivizing developers, giving us a couple of more affordable housing units, how about we flip that and incentivize people building affordable housing units, period, and actually do a moratorium on building luxury units? Because we've got an overabundance of luxury units, and we have absolutely a piggly amount of housing that is affordable for working people in this community. We ought to be ashamed when people work two and three jobs and can't afford first, last, and security deposit to move into a place. We can do better, but we have to have real leadership. Leadership that's unafraid to take on the power structure and work collaboratively and cooperatively to resolve these problems. If we are so progressive, we would have solved these problems 30 years ago, so we just aren't living up to who we think we are. Thank you. I want your vote. Please vote for me, Thank you, Felicia. So one of the things that we always have to think about is what's your motivation? And as a volunteer, that's always the underlying thing that we think. What's your motivation? So when I first was elected president of my neighborhood, I didn't quite know what to expect. One of the first phone calls I got was from a little old lady who lived in Fountain Place Apartments, which is a home forward property in downtown. She was being terrorized by her next door neighbor, Harry, who was selling drugs out of his apartment. She was afraid to report this to the housing property manager because she thought she would be evicted. Again, this is public housing. So I started digging a little bit, trying to figure out what was going on, because usually if you have a next door neighbor who's a drug dealer, that's, that's kind of a problem. So I met with her, and I met with the other residents of that building, and I met with, we had crime prevention that came with us. It turns out that Portland had implemented something called Housing First. It's the wet housing model, right? So Mariah didn't know that. She didn't realize that just because she's poor and she's living in public housing, that she had an ex-door neighbor that was a drug dealer and that the barrier for eviction was much higher for him than it was for her. At the same time that this was happening, the drug dealer on the fourth floor died of a heroin overdose. They had transients that broke into the building and set fire in the community room. So, my job 
was trying to figure out, what can I do to help her? What resources are available to us? This is one of my crash course in how city government fails the poorest people. Mariah doesn't live in the building anymore. Now two-thirds of it is wet housing. Her only crime was being poor. So when I think about the priorities that we have in city government, I always ask, compassion. Compassion for whom? And I think this is what I bring to the table. We need to balance compassion with common sense. And that's why I'm running for city council. I've spent my time in the trenches. I know where the problems are. I want to fix this because I don't think Myra should, uh, Mariah should be forced out of her housing. I don't think anybody should. My name is Felicia Williams. I am running for city council. If you'd like to find out more, we have information on the table. Thank you, Felicia. Andrea? Thank you, and thanks everyone for coming here today. I am a little disappointed that we didn't get a chance to do Q&A. I always love hearing specifically from you all, but hopefully we are able to get a chance to check in afterwards. I'd love to learn more about your own priorities and the questions that you do have. Um, again, with this race, I do think that it's really important to have someone who not only has good ideas, but the understanding of our commission form of government to implement those good ideas successfully and to know how to then be able to evaluate progress and make change and have those tough conversations in a positive way with our colleagues on um, the city council. This has been a strategy that I've used out in David Douglas. I think we have to make sure that we are prioritizing voices who understand what the majority of Portland is experiencing and how to make change in uh, those community priorities. I do think that also, you know, as a mom, I have to say, you know, one of the reasons why I jumped in was because it was important to me to tell a positive story, a positive outcome to my daughter. My husband and I had a lot of conversations about what was the message, what was the lesson that we were going to teach her about uh, this feeling of instability, of fear that our own community is facing. And to us, that meant that we were gonna show her that uh, it's possible to have someone who looks like me on council. It's possible to do something different uh, in a positive way and to and it affect change. That was the message that we knew was really important to share with her. And I do think that with this race, it's also important to consider what is the message that we are sending here in the possibility of doing something historic. What is the story that we're going to tell each other looking back here uh, and deciding who has the skill set and the passion and the hard work to be successful um, in these next few years. And so I hope that I can count on your vote. Again, my name is Andrea Valderrama. Uh, you can find more information on my website, valderrama4pdx.com. Thank you. Thank you. Loretta. Thank you. I want to thank everybody for coming today because this is what government is all about. This is about everyone coming to the table. And what you get with Commissioner Smith, you, you get someone who's going to bring everyone to the table. I'm the only one on this, on this floor who have brought people together, who have passed legislation that helps people stay in their homes, who work for young people making sure that they have the skills necessary to go into the, to the, to the future to make sure that they have an opportunity to succeed. A job is something 
that you have to train for. A job is something that you need to pay for housing. I want to make sure that I'm at the city so that we can make sure we have living wage jobs for people so they can live anywhere in the city, not just out in East County. They can live in North or Northeast Portland. I know that it's really tough when you have to figure out who to support, who to vote for. But a vote for Commissioner Smith is a vote for our young people. It's a vote for our, our seniors. It is a vote for communities of color. And it is a vote for someone who is not afraid to stand up. You all know we have a lot of problems at Multnomah County. Yes. You all know that there are a lot of employees who are experiencing racism, institutional racism, de deliberate. And I was the only commissioner that stood up and stood out and fought for our employees and said no more. You're going to get someone who's going to go down to the city and we're going to shake it up a little bit. We're going to bring some of District 2 down to City of Portland. And we're going to make sure that everybody knows that those doors are going to be open to everyone as a city commissioner. I would ask you to look at me as the only candidate that you can vote for because I am going to be the person who's going to stand up for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yesterday, I went to see Grace and her mother, Megan, and they were living in Quezon Chacoha as a project I designed uh, for Nea out in Lentz. And uh, Grace is now a junior. They were previously without a house. Grace is now a junior at Benson, and she's making dragons, and she's in the arts, and she showed me her business card, and she's got her phone going, and she is taken off. And she said to me, Thank you for giving us a home. In 2016, I helped the Jefferson Band, and there was a, a lead singer there who was um, uh, in and out of, uh, had some discipline issues at school, and then she found a band, and she became a singer uh, at the band, and she was really, really good. And we were at a concert one night, and she was, her house uh, was out in the land, so I offered to take her home, and so I, I did. And I didn't ask her too many questions on the way home, and she said, uh, you know, can I get some food? And I said, sure. Um, and I took her home, and I wasn't sure who was in that house. And then I saw on Facebook, it said, I won't, I won't find home, or I won't find peace until I find home. A lot of people say to me, why do you, do you talk about anything besides housing? And I said, rarely, because a safe, warm, and dry home is the foundation for a successful life, a successful city, and we can do better. It should be our top priority. Three years ago, the mayor said, we're going to, uh, we're going to call it housing emergency. And where are we today? We are in worse shape. I will bring the experience and the knowledge to move our city beyond our homelessness and our affordable housing crisis. Thank you, Stuart. So to wrap things up today, um, they are done with their part today. And this is where your part begins. Uh, as informed voters, as concerned community members, this is where you get the opportunity. We didn't have a debate today. We had a forum. So now, you get an opportunity to do a little bit deeper vetting of some of the comments that you've heard today, the perspectives that you've heard, the issues. Um, the candidates will be available to you, or representatives uh, will be available to you after this, so you can get an opportunity to connect with them. 
Um, and the other thing is, go online, find out more information, dig deeper. If you've heard something that didn't sound right to you, find out about it, and then share. If you have some power, then your duty and your job is to share that power with those that don't have the power uh, so that they can move their lives forward and they can benefit from that as well. Um, I'll, give, I'll give that credit, that's Toni Morrison. I put a little editorial on it, but that's Toni Morrison. Um, right, and so this is the this is your part now. So thank you all for coming today. I will say, last but not least, I would be remiss in my duties as coordinator of Black Male Achievement. That's right. There are not enough young people in this room today who will be voters very soon. And so, did you all enjoy this forum? I was feeling you, so I was almost not even going to ask. I felt you guys' energy today, and I, I had a feeling, but it's good to know. If you enjoyed this forum, the next time you see a forum from Black Voices PDAs, Black Voices United PDAs, come again and bring someone. And I implore you, bring a young person. Bring somebody in that age range. Well, I'm going to define young, but we're all young, right? But <laughs> I'm going to define young person for you. Bring a young person from 12 to 24, right? And from your community. I see a lot of black faces in this community. From your community, bring a black boy, bring a black girl, bring a Latino, a Latina, right? If you're, if you're a First Nation native, bring someone from your community and experience, to experience this because this represents an opportunity. This represents access, right, for our communities. Okay, so thank you again for coming out tonight. I want to thank Nikki. I want to thank the entire team yeah. that put this together. Emmanuel hopping in here. I hope you all enjoyed that, man. Session two was live, all the way live, man. Salute to CJ. Amazing job with the moderation. Um, this joint was like, you know, it was the second session. It was the afternoon. People had some food in them. They had their coffee. It was more folks in the crowd. The energy was up. Um, it was good, man. I hope I enjoyed it. Like sitting there, 
just taking it all in it was it was really good we had some heavy hitters on that panel you know what i mean so um yeah that was once again that was portland city council commissioner position number three those candidates so it was joanne hardesty felicia williams andrea valderrama loretta smith and Stuart emmons amazing just everybody on that on that panel was amazing it was funny though it was a few folks I don't know why. I mean, I kind of know why, but uh, it was some folks that had they had some issues with Felicia Williams. You know what I mean? I mean, she when you're when you're listening to it, like she's just boom clockwork, like spitting out her answers, boom, boom, boom. She has a she has a different type of cadence, a different type of vibe, and uh, but her facial expression was just like kind of dry. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to read into like why people weren't digging her. And why we had to like kind of stop and like, hey man, no heckling, whatever. Had cats walking, whatever. It is what it is. But uh, the energy in that room, man, it was it was awesome. It was it was amazing to be a part of. So even though y'all missed it live, or if you did miss it live, this is gonna go on every year, man. Salute to Nikki and Ezel. Continue to put on these great, great events, man. Like this is so necessary for the community. So. Um, I hope this continues to pick up steam, keep up the momentum, and we're gonna keep putting on for for the city. I mean, that's that's what we're gonna do. You know, the village, we, we gotta take care of the village. You know, we gotta be here for each other, and we gotta uplift each other. We gotta keep each other informed. Um, you know what I mean? So that's what we're gonna keep doing. That's why I was there to be able to share this with everybody, just in case you missed it. You got the whole thing at your fingertips. You know what I'm saying? So appreciate y'all for listening. Um, if you are on iTunes and if you have not yet done so, please subscribe. If you're on iTunes and if you have not rated five stars, please do so. That would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit of whatever that shows up helps me with my visibility, um, helps me to potentially get on new and noteworthy and just spread all this positivity and spread all this good content around the globe. So subscribe, rate five stars leave a little comment um whatever you have to say whatever type of feedback constructive or otherwise i welcome it so once again y'all it's the socks and sandals podcast where society culture history and religion collide and we unapologetically discuss our worldviews and also one other thing when that when that was over your ears did not deceive you that was 21 savage being played in the church house i was shocked and i was appalled I was waiting for some type of lightning and thunder to strike because I ain't never heard no 21 Savage in the church, in the house of the Lord. I was like, Jesus, what's going on? Uh, you you can't allow this. But uh, it happened. Um, God's grace continues to abound. Um, that his justice is delayed. So therefore... Never mind. I'm not. I'm not gonna get into no, get into no rant. But uh, anyways, it was a great event. Great event, man. I'm so glad I was able to be a part of it. Nikki, I appreciate you once again. I, I can't say that I appreciate you. You know, I really do for, uh, for having me come out and allowing me to be able to capture this moment. Um, so once again, man, hit your boy up on Twitter at sxsndls, on Instagram at sx. S and DLS on Facebook, socks and sandals, S O X A N D 
S-A-N-D-A-L-S. All right. I will holler at y'all next time. Next week, we're going to have another dope episode. I think next week, what I'm going to put out is part three of Toxic Masculinity. Um, With William Johnson, the first two parts were amazing. And part three was even... It's dope. It's dope. And then I'll also have... After that, I'll probably have... um, from the first session, I have Maria. I have um, there's Maria Garcia. So I sat down with her this week, and we did our own episode. And I'm working on trying to get Joanne Hardesty, and uh, I think Sharon Maxwell working on that. So I got a few folks that I'm reaching out to. So even though you guys heard them in this limited com- capacity, you know I'm going to try to have a full length interview with them so they can kind of go over their points and really represent who they are where they're from and what they're about all right so y'all keep it locked man stay tuned i got more great content on the way all right grace and peace